Welcome to My Teacher Friends Podcast. My name is Rachel, and I am a middle school choir teacher. I'm so excited to be hosting this podcast to share stories, teaching tips, and inspiration. Each week, I'll be joined by one of my smart, talented, passionate teacher friends for a conversation about all things education. Join us, because there's no job as challenging or as rewarding as being a teacher. Hi everyone, welcome back. I am so thankful that you are listening today. I want to dive right into today's episode, which was recorded at the end of last year. I think it was the end of November. So I just wanted to tell you that because you're going to hear us reference a few different things that will make more sense if you know that this was recorded at the end of November. Today's episode is with my friend Ursula, who is an arts administration professor at Indiana University. And this conversation probably could have gone on for hours and hours. Um, Ursula is just one of those people that is so easy to talk to and just keeps the conversation flowing. So there's a lot of different things that she talks about in this episode. She talks about her current role and previous teaching positions that she's been in. She talks about the interview process, using ThinkPairShare with her current students in a virtual setting, the importance of boundaries between work and personal life, and just continuing to spread a consistent message about being kind to one another. So, without further ado, here's my friend, Ursula. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Ursula. I've known Ursula since 2014. So let's get started with a little bit about you. Can you share your educational history, where you went to school, and what other professional jobs you've had leading up to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. Well, one, thank you for having me and here to chat with you. I'm super excited. Um, So my education and my experience leading to being a teacher is kind of unorthodox. Um, I was always involved with the arts. I have worked in the arts. As a child, I was in children's choirs and went to art camps at museums and extracurriculars, you name it. So I knew I was going to have a life in the arts, but come college, I had no idea what that was going to look like. I wasn't sold on being a performer. I wasn't sold on being a teacher. I wasn't, I just felt completely lost. And then I found out about this field called arts administration, which is essentially bridging art to audiences and making it happen in the business side of things behind the scenes. And I thought that was really exciting because I was volunteering for my hometown symphony orchestra and had no concept of what this actually was. And I was like, oh, that's what all these people do to make orchestra concerts happen and education programs happen and community enrichment programs happen. So I ended up majoring in arts administration, thinking I was going to run an opera company or a theater company or the like and work in the arts on the business side of things. I did my major internship in education for an opera company and I did my bachelor's degree at Butler University in Indianapolis. And I fell in love with education outreach and community engagement. I got to work a summer program for children for opera. I got to help with curriculum design for the upcoming season for student matinees 
and uh, materials for teachers in the classroom. And I just loved it. And I asked my preceptor, my mentor at the opera company, I said, I think this is what I want to do. What do I do next? And she said, you have a couple options. I think it would behoove you to get some teaching experience in and get a degree in education because these jobs usually are filled by people who are former teachers um, who maybe have done graduate education and in instruction and in curriculum or educational leadership, music education, arts education, one of those fields. So I got a fellowship to stay at Butler um, to do my master's degree. And I was a teaching fellow in our community arts school. So I was learning how to be a private instructor in voice, which was my instrument. And I also was teaching with the Indianapolis Children's Choir as part of my graduate curriculum because they have a very strong partnership with Butler. They rehearsed there, they're housed there. And I started to really fall in love with teaching and I ended up actually teaching middle school choir and general music for a while in Indianapolis. Um, loved it. It was an experience. Middle school is an experience. Anyone who has ever taught middle school music, it is truly an experience. <laughs> you have them after gym class, which makes for an Woo. interesting time. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot, but they were a great. Classroom, I'm sure. It, you know, Febreze was my friend. You know, at the end of the day, Febreze was my friend and a really, really great air purifier and humidifier that helped out a lot. Um, and I loved it. I loved working with ICC. Um, I loved teaching in the classroom. I was still, you know, flexing my arts administration muscle and I was doing some admin work for ICC as well. Um, and I was also still performing, which was great. It was part of my curriculum doing my master's degree. I still had to do ensembles and take lessons. Um, so it was, I loved it. I was doing all three. And then while I was getting towards the end of my master's degree, I started auditioning for young artist programs. I started auditioning for um, scholarships and voice competitions. And all of a sudden I was winning them and I was getting cast in shows. I was singing with the professional opera company in Indianapolis, my second year of my master's degree. And I was like, wow, people think I'm really good at this and I like it. So maybe I'll try performing. So I ended up getting my doctorate in performance at Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University, which has hands down the best opera program in the country. Um, it's you, you run like a professional house and the stage is the size of the Metropolitan Opera stage, but minus one foot, I think in length. So you're training in a big house, you're treated like a professional, it's rigorous. And then when you're a doctoral student, you also have to do minors. So I did a minor in music education and I did a minor in arts administration. So I was able to keep up all my interests and all my loves. So I ended up doing my doctorate, graduated, um, got a university position right out of the gate. Um, I was really, really grateful while I was doing my doctorate. I um, took courses on teaching at the college level, which was extraordinary. I also had a assistantship where I worked with one of the programs on campus, one of the scholarship programs on campus. So I was teaching there as a um, TA, they call them associate instructors, but as a TA essentially. And then I taught adjunct in the arts administration program when I was ABD, when I was finishing my dissertation my last year. So I was lucky, I graduated with my doctorate right when the adjunct crisis started to happen in higher education. So this is kind of right towards the tail end of the, reception, the uh, recession in 09. 
um, where a lot of universities started hiring a mass amount of adjuncts per course. And with that, they just paid per course and they didn't have to worry about paying benefits or anything like that. They weren't salaried, traditional salaried teaching tenure track, clinical track positions. So people would be adjuncting at three or four universities just to get by at the end of the day. So I was very fortunate and landed a tenure track position um, at a liberal arts college in Virginia, an all women's liberal arts college in Virginia, and ran their arts management program. It was a certificate program. Um, it was, we quadrupled in four years while I was there. It looked like it was gonna be a degree granting program eventually, which would have been fantastic. Uh, we took students to New York and Washington DC on enrichment and immersion learning on the land courses. Uh, we had students working within the Central Virginia region. They were doing internships everywhere. They were studying abroad. It was really fantastic. And it was a real strong interdisciplinary program. Um, after that, I ended up going into the field and bounced from academia to running an arts organization. And I ran a company, in, an opera company in Washington, D.C., Washington Concert Opera, um, which is the second largest company in Washington. And one thing people don't realize about Washington, D.C. is it is a profoundly culturally rich city, and it's not just the Smithsonian covering that. Um, there are so many phenomenal arts organizations of all shapes and sizes in that city, and actually the nonprofit sector is larger than the government sector in Washington now. So, yeah, so it's insanely robust. A lot of people think you go there to work for the federal government to work in the public sector, and actually it's the nonprofit sector that's kind of taken it over. Um, so I worked there for a while. It was awesome. It was a phenomenal learning experience. I learned a lot about who I am as a leader and what my philosophy is as a professional. Um, I got to meet people who I used to like read books about and articles they've written and got to meet some people who I've considered my heroes while I was there and building this really insanely robust, well-connected network um, that I never would have had if I didn't go to Washington. Um, and while I was in Washington, I found out there was a job teaching arts administration at my alma mater at Indiana University. Um, and the arts administration program is housed at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. So we're not in fine arts, we're not in Jacobs, we're not in business, we're actually in the program where the public affairs degrees are, the policy degrees, etc., which is quite unique, but it works for us really, really well. So I heard there was a job, um, got connected, applied, interviewed, and I was one of these people that's like, I'm never going to go back to IU. I'm never going to go back to Bloomington. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go to these cities. And I was very keen on staying in Washington the rest of my life. And so I'm like, there's no way I'm going to go back unless they ask me to come back or I'll go for homecoming one year with a bunch of friends, maybe for our 10 year reunion or something like that. I'm the classic case of never say never. <laughs> like I never imagined I'd be back and got the job and I'm clinical faculty here. So I have a practitioner background. I do research, but I'm not at the, it's not the same type of research that a tenure track professor would do at a very large big 10 R1 research university. My research is usually pedagogical. Um, so, but I'm clinical because I've been in the field a lot, so I'm more of a practitioner-based educator, and I teach all the way from freshmen to doctoral students, 
So it kind of spans, which, you know, some people are like, oh, that can't be that bad. I said, look, sometimes it's easier teaching middle school some days than it is teaching, teaching college students. And I mean that with love. Um, so it runs the gamut from that. And also I teach everything from our undergraduate introduction to arts management course that our first years take, and that's part of the core curriculum at IU, all the way to a graduate seminar on arts education policy. So it's pretty diverse and I've been here now. This is my fifth year teaching here and it's been grand. I love it. Wow. I, I just love your history and your timeline. I, I, I just think that's so cool. Um, what was the, what's the biggest difference between interviewing for a job in like a public school setting K-12 versus at the collegiate level when it comes to interviews? I mean, it's, it, it's, there are similarities and there are differences. Um, and those differences are big at the end of the day. So the similarities is you, you really present a similar dossier. You know, you have a CV, you will submit, you know, usually a philosophy statement, um, you know, your philosophy of teaching. I had to do that when I applied for, you know, when I was teaching middle school, I had to state a philosophy statement. Um, I had to submit part of my professional portfolio that hit different bullet points according to teacher qualification um, in the state of Indiana, all those things they teach you in your methods classes that you have to put together. Um, you know, I had to do an interview where I did mock teaching um, at both places. I had to come in and work with the students a little bit and it was more prescriptive when it was the school system versus a university setting. At a university setting, they pretty much, I got a lot more leeway in what I wanted to teach in the mock lecture. Um, you know, and these mock lectures are usually anywhere from 45 minutes to 75 minutes. So it was much more substantial than being in a middle school classroom per se. Um, but at the university, lucky if you get 30 minutes in a middle school classroom, like exactly. that's a good day if you made it that far. Yeah, you know, and also it's, there's, of course, there's a lot of shuffling around that you'll see. You're going to talk to different people. Of course, you'll talk to the principal, you'll probably talk to an area or division head um, within the public school system. You'll have conversations that are going to range from methodology to understanding standards and implementation of standards to understanding budget. I had a budget question when I was interviewing, um, when I was teaching middle school about understanding music administration budget. And I'm so glad that was covered in one of my classes. Um, at the university level, a lot of that you'll see, but it's a lot more robust and it's a lot more intensive. And it's kind of, they're both endurance races, but usually at a university, you're interviewing for anywhere between a day and a half to three days. So you do visits. Um, granted, this was pre-COVID. Now in the era of COVID, that's adaptive a little bit and you're not seeing so much on-campus interviewing happening at, at the, in the higher education level. But you would come on campus and you start being interviewed from the moment you're picked up from the airport until the moment you're dropped off at the airport. Um, you'll meet with administrators. There will be a search committee involved at the university level. Um, my search committee here at IU, I think, had about five people on it, if I'm remembering correctly. And some of them were within my program. Some of them were outside of the program to give a different perspective, to keep it balanced. Um, I had to submit all sorts of documents, you know, your letters of recommendation. Um, I had to do a mock lecture and it was interesting because it was a mock teaching session 
that would be for what we call cross-listed classes. So I had to give a lecture that would work for upper level undergrads as well as graduate students at mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. So that brings a whole nother level of complexity to it. You meet with students, you meet with other faculty, you usually don't meet with a president of a university or a provost, but you'll meet with the dean. Um, and you'll meet with maybe an associate dean, you'll meet with maybe a director of undergraduate studies, really key staff members that you will have high impact relationships with at the end of the day. So you're shuffled around a lot. Um, wear comfortable shoes is like my best piece of advice. You'll do a campus tour, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty exhausting. It's an endurance, it's a marathon at the end of the day, um, these types of interviews. That being said, getting to the final on-campus interview, usually in higher education, you have already had one to two phone or Zoom interviews at that point, and they have a pretty good guess as to who they're interested in hiring, really. So I really view the on-campus interview, yes, they're interviewing you to see if you're really the right fit. They've got a hunch about you, they think you're the right fit, but the interviewee is really interviewing the institution. Um, you're really at the point where you now have to make the decision after being on campus, after interacting with so many people, if this is the right place for you. So I always tell people when they're interviewing for university level jobs, don't forget that facet. It's not about them looking at you. You also have to look at them more than just being a job. Um, so it was, it was lucrative. Um, every on-campus interview I've done has been about two-ish, two-ish days or so. Um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm a firm believer too. There, you know, university jobs are very competitive. Moreover, I'm in a field of study that's very niche. Um, there are just a couple hundred arts administration educators in the world. This is a relatively young field. Our field has been an academic discipline for about 60 years. So compared to the liberal arts, compared to music, even in music education, we're neophytes at this point still. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure. It's highly competitive, but I always tell people making it even to an on-campus interview is, you know, a feather in your cap at the end of the day. You know, they'll bring maybe two to three people to campus after a search. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, it's a lot. It's a lot, but I tend to be invigorated by those experiences a lot because you get to see students, you get to see people you might be working for. And it's just, I, I learn a lot about myself and about the field in general whenever I've had the fortune to interview. Yeah, it's part of the process, right? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting like how, where you ended up because I know oftentimes for university jobs, you're going across the country. I mean, you're going from one point to another hoping you get a job. And when you think about like, is this where I wanna be? Like that's a factor too, where you ended up back in Indiana, where you were probably like, you had a support system, I'm assuming, or had some close connections. And I think you're lucky in that way to have ended up back, back there. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm a tried and true Midwesterner. I'm, I'm from Ohio and then went to school in Indiana. Um, I love the Midwest. You know, the Midwest national anthem is the Menards jingle, you know. <laughs> And I love a good hot dish, not gonna lie. Um, 
you know, so I did, I felt like I wasn't starting over personally because I did have so many friends and family within the area. I had had several friends move back to the area um, who had left the Midwest and then came back after a while. Um, but yeah, when it comes to, you know, teaching jobs at the university level, I mean, you really adopt the, you go where the job is mentality. It's, it's competitive regardless of what field you're in. So if, you know, there's a job that you're right for, but it's across the country, you got to go for it. Um, so we really have to go where the, where the job is. I mean, I've applied for jobs all over in places I never considered living in. My first job was in a place that never crossed. I, I was living in central Virginia. Um, and that was never a place on my radar ever, you know, but it was where the job is. And thankfully I developed a wonderful community there. I got involved with the city. Um, I lived downtown in a really cool loft and was able to walk everywhere. So, um, it ended up working out really well, but there's a lot of considerations I think with teaching jobs or even administrative jobs in higher education. You know, you have to consider if you have a spouse, if you have kids, if you're able to relocate well, or if you're going to do the split division thing, um, it can get really complicated. Um, thankfully, I've been lucky where it hasn't been complicated. So, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty grateful for that. Awesome. Okay. Well, I could talk to you forever about the history of where you got, how you got to where you are, but let's move on um, <laughs> to some teaching tips and we can kind of do like what's going well for you right now included in teaching tips. Yeah. So each of us will share one tip for the listeners to try. What's a teaching tip, something that has worked well for you in your classroom environment or, and, or for your own self-care right now? Yeah, so I'm teaching completely virtual. Um, Indiana went virtual right after spring break. We ended up getting an extra week of spring break. So teachers could try to put everything together and translate everything well online to the best of our ability for the final six weeks of the semester. And this was um, this and this, Yeah, yeah. And so I'm teaching completely from home this year for the entire academic year. Um, and I am someone who thrives being in a classroom. I'm a roamer. That must be from my teaching choir days. I just walk all the time. I get my steps in while I teach, essentially. I've never sat so much in my life. I, I, it drives me nuts. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I never have done it. It drives me nuts. I enjoy talking with students before class. I play music before class. Um, I try to be relatable, but I'm not. You know, I try to stay hip and with it, but it's not, but they laugh. So that's all that matters. Um, so when I knew I had to go online, I'm like, how are half the things that I do going to translate into a virtual environment and translate well and, you know, stick? Um, I'm not someone who likes to lecture and talk at people. I want to talk with people. And my favorite is when I'm just refereeing and my, my students are taking over. That's my favorite experience when I teach. So I said, okay, how can I get them in a thought process that works in the classroom that I traditionally do, but translate it to the virtual online environment to cultivate that type of, you know, place of learning. So I love to use think, pair, share. Um, that's one of my favorite things where I throw out a question to the students based off of what they prepared for that class. I throw them a question where it's like they get 90 seconds to just jot something down. They are not writing a thesis. It doesn't need to be in complete sentences. They are not submitting or turning anything in. In the classroom, I have them do note cards with this. Um, they do it from the comfort of their home with a notebook or on their laptop. So I give them about 90 seconds. 
And then what I do is I randomize breakout rooms with anywhere between two to three students in it. Um, because I'm in a state institution, I have larger classes. So my classes this semester range between about 25 all the way to 50. Um, so, which is a whole nother thing online. So what I'll do is I'll randomize breakout rooms where they get about two minutes to talk and exchange their ideas. So I pair them up to exchange with among themselves and see what they have to say. And then I'll bring them back after two minutes into the main room and then have them share. Um, and we'll bounce around for usually about 10-ish minutes or so through this whole activity just to get their juices going. I gotta tell you, their participation is better. They are more confident with sharing their thoughts. And these questions I'm asking them require them to synthesize. So I'm not asking, so, you know, what is the definition of a mission statement? I'm asking them, you know, things that are more formative assessment rather than a summative assessment. Because we focus just like in public school education, we focus on a lot of summative assessment at the higher education level because we also have accreditation we have to do, et cetera. And I think there's too much emphasis on that. So anytime I can infuse with formative, it's great. Um, and that's how I start you know, most of my classes. And it's, it cultivates a similar environment even though we're all seeing each other through screens at the end of the day. So I'm glad I figured out a way to translate something that I've been doing for a while and it worked for the most part. You know, they've been more likely to turn on their cameras, which I think is something we all struggle with is getting students to turn cameras on or engaging even if it's just in the chat room rather than turning on their microphone. So think pair share 12 out of 10 would highly recommend to anyone. You find that they are ready to share right away or does it ever <laughs> excuse me, ever take you a while to get them, to get the conversation going? Are they hesitant or do they come out ready to talk right away? No, for the most part, they come out ready to talk. Um, I will say there is sometimes a delay because, you know, I use reinforcement, so I'll state the question again. And then usually say I'm opening it up to the congregation. And usually they'll be like that five or 10 seconds. It's a little longer virtually. In the classroom, you'd get that too, where it'd be a while. But then someone usually raises their hand or turns on their microphone and says, I've got a thought. And then it just steamrolls from there. Um, you know, I, I don't like answering my own questions. I don't think students learn answering their own questions. Um, I personally, I'll even say with students sometimes if it, there's a lull that I don't want to interject because I know they can lead and champion the conversation. I know they're just not wanting to speak up. Um, I learned this from one of my professors during my doctoral degree, who's a very close friend of mine, just saying, I'm comfortable with silence. I gotta tell you, it'll terrify anyone. <laughs> and so, and that works really well with college students. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then once you get it going, sometimes I can't stop it. And I usually have to, but if we end up evolving into a really robust conversation, that's steeped in what we're talking about in that class session, I just let it go. I, you know, I, why not? Yeah, it worked, you know, you're making connections. It worked, you know, and, and I had a class like that not that long ago. Um, we were doing, it was with my undergraduate intro class. We were reading some articles about current issues, current things happening in the field. And a lot of it was centered about COVID. 
Um, one was about what organizations are doing to get back on their feet. One was about the arts organizations in Europe going through a second shutdown and why it feels different. And then new programming that arts organizations have been doing to alleviate some of the wrongs regarding inclusion and equity in our field. And we just had a fantastic conversation about it the entire time. I did not have to go into going to my lesson plans or anything like that because it was just, it was using relatable real-time content and it was great. That was one of the best ways to end class before going on a holiday break <laughs> this fall. It was fantastic. But yeah, if, it, if they're going with it, just keep going. There's no yeah, reason. I think for sure. I mean, that can be utilized at every grade level. At every grade level. It's cool to hear that you're using it at your level where I use it with my sixth and seventh graders. And maybe it looks a little different, but that's great. I haven't honestly tried it virtually. So you, you've inspired me to add that into next week's plans. It's, you know, it works. And because it's so, because you're having them think on their feet pretty quickly. And again, it's not writing about this it's not this grand ode that they're writing. You know, I just put them in breakout rooms. I don't feel the need or compelled because it's such a short period of time to go check in on them. I know a lot of us are like, oh gosh, we've got to make the breakout room rounds. Um, I'm very grateful that in that class, I have a teaching assistant, one of my graduate students who's just phenomenal. So she's able to help with that. But because this is so short, it gives them a little bit of ownership without feeling I'm hovering or my TA's hovering. It's, you know, and they get the job done. I've never seen anyone really slack off or try to get away with doing nothing. They'll put things in the chat box. They'll, they they'll want integrate. to talk, you know, yeah. we're, we're missing that socialization, like in this virtual world. So yeah. when you give them the opportunity, they'll take it. Oh yeah. They just need that initial push sometimes. Yeah. Awesome. And um, I guess I'll share my teaching tip for the week. So I have been trying to remind myself to still have fun, even though we are in this virtual world. We've forgotten um, fun a little bit lately. Yeah. Um, so I, my kids love Kahoot. It's like this online website where you can make these little, it's like quick uh, trivia. Yeah, I've um, heard about this. Yeah. yeah. They can like, sign in and they can have their own username and add their own little emojis and um instead you know there's there's ways to make cahoots that apply to your content and can be very educational and in choir i've been making cahoots that are revolving around music but a little not so like rigorous i don't know that's probably not the right word for it but so right before thanksgiving break I found a bunch of songs that either included the word like thankful or thank you. Um, I had a song by the Cranberries that I, I said, what, what group do you think uh, sang this song? And the kids loved it. And they, it's just like the ones who have their cameras on, they look happy and excited and they race to get to be the first one to get the answer. Um, so that's, that's been fun in my classroom virtually. Yeah, like creating almost a little competition for them, like game show with your class a little bit. See, that's something, you know, I've heard of Kahoot, but when I think about all those cool tools, which I have not explored enough, I'll be completely honest, like those could be great for, you know, university professors with like prepping for exams on stuff that is, you know, very objective, you know, concepts you've got to get. I might have to start using that. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out over the holidays. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's a ton that are already made, but I've been enjoying, I've been trying to challenge myself by getting, trying to use technology more. So instead of just taking what's already out there, I'm trying to be more creative with it. So that's been fun for me. And what about self-care? What are you doing right now? That's working. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so the rule I made for myself, um, last spring when we went online, but more so this academic year when we knew what we were walking into and had the summer to prep and we were very lucky. We have a center for innovation and teaching and learning that offered workshops on stuff on how to better teach online, how to do group projects online, which is really interesting as I have a class doing a group project right now. I would not, I would not be doing well without that office at IU. Um, but one thing I really enforce this year is my work stays at work. And even though my work is at home right now, I've set up essentially like what would be akin to an office um, where I invested in things like a stand for my laptop and a Bluetooth keyboard and some equipment for recording lectures and this, that, or the other. But when I'm done at work, I close everything up and my laptop stays on my kitchen table. Everything stays on my kitchen table. It never goes to my living room. It never goes to my bedroom. It doesn't go to any other place in the house. It stays here and work is work. And when I'm done for the day, you know, my email is done for the day. You know, even if someone, I think we all know and realize if someone says it's an emergency, it's usually not an emergency if you're getting an email about it. Um, you know, and that's something I communicate. I think boundaries are really important. And so I've been more diligent about setting them rather than being a martyr to my work. Um, so my students know forthright, you know, after six o'clock, I don't reply to emails. Um, on weekends, I do not reply to emails. That being said, I will always get back to you within a business day, usually less. Um, you know, having those types of boundaries, I think are important and we are deserving of them. I think we're a, we're a society that thinks that rest is a privilege and not inherently something that we all deserve. Rest is not a privilege. We can't function and we, moreover, we can't function in what feels like a parallel dimension of our own realities without rest. So just being intentional with boundaries has been a really, really big thing for me this year. You hear that listeners? Boundaries. Get They're important. Break. Listen, rewind, listen to that again. That is that spot on. Awesome. Yes. Amazing. Love it. My self-care tip for the week has been lives or streaming all of these live concerts that are on all of these streams. Yes. I have been obsessed with the new Taylor Swift documentary on Disney Plus. So good. About her album Folklore. I love, there's two documentaries about Shawn Mendes on Netflix. And I personally think he's a wonderful musician. Um, and in a time when live music, in you know, really truly in-person music is not happening at all or very infrequently, um, that is giving me life. And I didn't really realize how much I missed the live music interaction. Um, but watching, watching live music on TV has been really therapeutic for me within the past like month. So. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's phenomenal. And as someone who studies arts organizations, I think it's amazing how adaptable 
so many artists and arts organizations, what they've done with programming to still be within their communities and active and be part of their constituents' lives. And I applaud them. But nothing will ever be the live experience. And I got to tell you, the moment we get to a place where we don't have these restrictions, where things are safer for us, I'm going to be going to shows like every week. I'm going to be taking money up for tickets at this point for stuff because I, people will crave it and maybe crave it more. People who maybe weren't big into going to live arts events might really desire it. Um, you know, like they never expected. I, I cannot wait to sit in a hall. Like I even miss people unwrapping cough drops in a concert hall at this point. (laughs) I was watching back a a little clip from one of my choir concerts last year and there was a baby crying in the background and I was like oh what I would do for the baby crying while the kids are singing <laughs> like I yeah. happily take that yeah what we're doing right now so oh yeah totally yeah people go go see live performances when we can and I'm sure they will be well publicized so okay moving on we're gonna play a little game are you up for it I, let's do it. (laughs) So as a kid, I remember loving those third grade multiplication time tests. Do you remember? Yes, 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 yes. Um, So today we're going to flip the deck and have a teacher time test. You'll have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can. So I'll ask the questions, rapid fire, you just answer. Okay, let's do it. Are you ready? I have my timer. Okay, here we go. Favorite month of the school year? Favorite month of the school year? May. School lunch? Always? Sometimes? Never? Uh, Sometimes. Favorite thing to do in the summer that you don't do during the school year? Read books that are not academic. Teacher's lounge? Always? Sometimes? Never? Always because there's a really good espresso machine in there. First name of a student that had a huge impact on you. Katie Jo. Going into school on the weekends. Always, sometimes, never. Never. A teacher that inspired you as a child. Mrs. Hackney. Teaching summer school. Always, sometimes, never. Sometimes, but it's a study abroad program. And that brought us to our time. Perfect timing. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, on to our next topic, advice. What advice do you have for someone entering their first years of teaching and someone entering their last years of teaching? Ooh, if we only had like five episodes to cover this of your podcast, because we'd need at least that many. One of the biggest ones for me, and I think it translates to any discipline and people at any level within the discipline. I am a firm believer that whatever you're doing as a teacher, as a learner, as a professional, 90% of your success is being organized. Um, I personally am a devotee to the home edit and I love organizing and I love color coding. I always have, I've always been that type of person. Um, but I really realized this when I started teaching, 
You know, I used to be like, oh gosh, so many teachers have these huge resource files and binders. Why do they keep so much stuff? They need to get rid of it. They keep it so they can keep using it and adapt as time goes on. And I realized keeping things organized and being diligent about it without being obsessive about it makes your life a lot easier. Um, and if you keep things organized in the way that works best for you, you can reach to resources when you need them. And I'm a firm believer in the real world. You have your resources at your disposal. So why not make it easier for yourself? And this is something I impress upon my students literally from day one. Um, you know, I, I do this with my first years all the way to graduate students. Um, I will do open book midterms or exams um, often instead of having a traditional you know, multiple choice Scantron exam. That's not my style. So I usually do open note, open book. And a lot of the time students think this is going to be easier because I have my book. How hard could it be? But I usually give synthesis examinations that are more akin to like a qualifying exam or a comprehensive exam. Of course, cater to a level to where the students are. It's not going to be like, you know, your exams you take before your dissertation of a PhD. And I tell them it's a synthesis exam. You have to pull from multiple resources to have a strong, cohesive answer um, and use your scholarly opinion to help support that as well. And I will tell them, organize now. I'll give them weeks and organize, organize, organize. And some of the students are like, I don't need to do that. I've taken open book exams before. And all of a sudden they realize once they take the exam, why did I not have things organized? But I think that really applies to anyone. And I'm a firm believer, use a system that works best for you. But I think being organized can help you be accountable. It allows you to think more on your feet better because you have your resources where you need them. Um, but I'm a firm, I'm a firm believer. It's, it's an enormously large component of anyone's success, regardless of what they're doing. Awesome. And is that first years and last years? I think it goes for first years and last years teachers. I mean, especially when you're thinking of teachers who are leaving, whether it be retirement or a job change, I think that institutional history can be really, really beneficial um, to if someone, you know, I think a lot about retirement because those of us who teach really, for the most part, stick it out um, for the duration of our professional careers. And one big thing, that I think is important when a teacher leaves, and I think this goes in arts management and arts administration when it comes to leadership, is allow whoever is coming in to build their own culture. I think we really get attached because we're so passionate to the programs we build, and they take a long time to build. I remember, you know, I, I was only in you know, teaching middle school for, you know, not a super long time. And in the short time I was there, I wasn't anywhere near building the program that I wanted to see. It takes years and years to do that. Um, but I think it's important to allow whoever is coming in to build their own culture. Um, that's just part of, you know, leadership change at the end of the day. And I think sometimes it can be hard to distance from that. And I've seen that happen with arts organizations and with different, you know, art education, music education programs where they still feel they have to have a finger on the pulse. And that's a lovely sentiment, but it doesn't allow who's now in charge and has purview over everything to build a new culture upon the foundation that you had. So I think, I think that is really, really important as well. Definitely. 
when I started my current job, my predecessor left me with all of her materials and her phone number. And she said, if you have any questions, let me know. Do what you yeah. want. Here's, here's what I did. And I'm happy to talk to you about any of it if you want. And I thought that was, that was really cool because I could use what I wanted. I did have questions, so I, we did talk. Um, and then over time, obviously, I've adapted to, or I've created my own program. But a lot of what she left me with was super helpful in those first couple years. Yeah, why, why reinvent the wheel completely? Right. You know, I mean, you, you, you obviously want to put your own imprint on whatever you're doing. Um, and you want to make it your own. And everyone has every right to do that. But again, why do more work than you have to? Um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, and why not be a resource? I think one of the things we have to realize, anyone who's a teacher at any level, is we hate asking for help. Like, we're so bad at asking. We're bad with boundaries. We're bad for asking for help. Um, you know, why not extend the olive branch, regardless of where you are in your career? I mean, I even do that with my students. I close every email if you have a question or I can be a resource for you, don't hesitate to reach out. It's just one, it's a nice note of kindness because we could use more of that in the world pandemic or not. Um, but it allows for a really, I think it allows for a great legacy paying it forward kind of thing. I mean, you're modeling something that someone modeled to you that you want folks to continue on. Definitely, definitely. We need each other more than we think. Mm -hmm. Okay, on to our final question. I'm getting sad. We're nearing the end. Maybe, maybe we will have to have like part two and three and four and five uh, down the road. I'll bring back. I'll bring back my favorite guests. Okay. So our last question of today: What are you currently listening to, watching, and reading? Um. So, watching right now, I'm watching The Queen's Gambit the new miniseries on Netflix. Everybody's watching that. I need to hop on the train. Fantastic. And when I read the premise, I thought, oh gosh, this is so not for me. And I was reeled in within the first half hour of the first episode. Um, 12 out of 10. It is fantastic. I wish there was another season of it, but it's only a miniseries. Um, so I've been watching that in Great British Bake Off. That's one of my, my fiance and I love Great British Bake Off. So we watch that a lot together. Um, listening, I have Sirius XM, so I listen to satellite radio all the time, but my big channel lately has been their holiday pops channel, which is like more like classical Christmas stuff. And they play like all that great choral repertoire that all of us have done. So I find myself singing along to it all the time, um, without knowing it. And it's just, it's nice to have a little Christmas music, even though it's, it's not quite here yet. It's, it makes you feel good. So yeah. anything that like joy right now you you're allowed to do oh yeah i was just bought busting out how spotless rose with <laughs> with my with my you know alexa um before i got on this on the podcast um and then reading wise i've been pacing myself just because i you, during the school year it's really hard for me to read books for fun because i'm keeping up on journals and articles and other stuff that's, you know, more geared towards my classes. But one book that I'm working my way through, I think I'll finish it over Christmas break, is um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, My Own Words, um, which is like her, a collection of her writings, kind of autobiography memoir um, that was published, I think about maybe a year or two ago. Um, it was published before she passed away in September. 
Um, I got to meet Ruth Bader Ginsburg when I was working in Washington and got to know her. She was a, a patron of our organization and someone I always looked up to and, and had deep respect for. Um, you know, I was completely heartbroken when she passed away. Um, so this book has been kind of a nice comfort, you know, just, just, you know, it's kind of like an epic throwback Thursday a little bit, um, reading, reading it because she was just such a lovely person. You want to talk about someone who was maybe one of the best art supporters in Washington. It's just, and she loved opera and she loved music and she just, you know, just, an absolutely what a woman. What a woman. Lovely, delightful human being. And I, I just feel very fortunate I got to know her for the brief time that I did. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up today? Gosh. Um, I mean, it's just kind of echoing what I've I've said throughout is, you know, be a resource to each other. We might we might all be on the same in the same sea, but we're not on the same boat, regardless of pandemic or not. So I think being a resource, being kind, I think having boundaries so you can be kind to yourself is still really important. I think checking in on your colleagues is really important, even people you might not be the closest of friends with, either at work or within your discipline and just a text that says, hey, how's it going thinking of you can go such a long way. Um, I, I, I think that can be very, very powerful. And I think any way we can bring comfort to each other, especially right now, is so very crucial for our well-being. And also I think with students too. I mean, I, I this semester have met with all of my students one-on-one -on -one twice. And they've been literally five to 10 minute conversations just where I'm asking, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Do you have questions about class? Is there anything I can do for you right now, class related or not? And that has had a really, really strong effect. And I think it's made my relationship with my students stronger in a time where I didn't think that might be possible. So I think that checking in is important for, for all of us, everyone involved. Relationships matter. I say that all they the time. They do. They're everything, y'all. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ursula, for joining me today. I am so excited for listeners to hear this episode. You are someone I've always looked up to in education and just in life. You're just a woman inspiration to me, and it's nice to see someone who I aspire to be somewhat like. Oh, um, you're so sweet. You're wonderfully your own. And I've just enjoyed getting to see you go from a college student to a total rock and music teacher. So the pleasure is totally all mine. All right. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of My Teacher Friends. Send me an email and let me know what you thought of today's episode. If you tried any of our teaching tips, and how they worked for you and your students at myteacherfriendspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, teacher friends, take a deep breath, relationships matter, and never stop being authentically you.